Hello, ladies. Welcome back to Women in the Word. Or maybe I should just be uh, saying welcome to all of you that are here, um, new today, first time. If you are here for the very first time ever at Women in the Word, raise your hand. Let us see you out there. Welcome, welcome, we're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for coming. And welcome back to all of you that were here last semester and you're back now. So if you were here last semester and you've come back, raise your hand. Okay, yay, thanks for coming back, glad to see that. And so then there's some of you out there that I guess have been to Women in the Word in the past, you didn't come last semester, but now you're back this semester. Raise your hand if you're in that group. Okay, quite a, yeah, great, thank you, welcome one and all. I am Deb Haygood, I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team and it is a thrill, it is a joy for me to be here with you studying God's Word together. We can take a deep breath and relax because all the Christmas decorations are put away. Um, yeah, I've got a, just a couple left, but I'm in good shape because my goal is to get it all put away by Valentine's Day. Um, you're laughing, we're laughing, but hey, Valentine's Day is just around the corner. I saw Valentine's candy on the shelves in the store. Seriously, it is coming up. And we can relax um, today because most of us have already made our New Year's resolutions and unlike Debbie, we've broken them. So those are out of the way. We don't have to think about those. Um, but I, I was impressed with Debbie's and I'm wondering how many of you out there made a New Year's resolution and you have not broken it yet? Raise your hand. If you have not broken it. Okay, just a few, it looks like. You're ladies after my own heart. Um, okay, so we can put that aside. Um, as we um, begin today our study of Exodus, this semester is uh, 16 weeks, and I wanna begin today with an overview of Exodus. We're gonna talk about what the book of Exodus is about and uh, the purpose and the goal for studying Exodus this uh, semester, and then we're gonna look uh, at chapter one in Exodus. I promise you that you will see something new in the book of Exodus uh, this semester. It may be a verse that you've never read before or you don't remember. It may be something that jumps out at you that you never noticed, a thought that you've never had. It may be someone up here says something that makes you see Exodus a little bit differently. Or it could be somebody in your small group that says something that causes you a deeper understanding. And so, because of small groups, let me put in a plug for homework real quickly. Those are the discussion questions that we hand out. Those are for you, ladies. We want you to be able to, as you study through this book of Exodus, kind of go through those questions and let them kind of give you some things to think about, go deeper into this. They are for you, because our desire is that you would be inspired by the Holy Spirit as you read God's word. And then you come to your small group and you may be that very person that says something to someone that gives them greater understanding, that helps them to see something in Exodus they haven't seen. Whether you have studied Exodus many times or whether this is the very first time you've studied Exodus, you are important in your small group. You may have that thought. 
Um, today, we're going to look at this overview, and I think that uh, most of us, maybe all of us in this room, are familiar with Exodus. We've either studied it before, we've read it, we uh, have heard the familiar stories in Exodus, um, or we've seen Charlton Heston um, part the Red Sea in the movie, The Ten Commandments. We're familiar with Exodus, and we come looking at Exodus through our own frame of reference. Our frame of reference are those um, experiences those beliefs, those things we have that we bring with us as we look at scripture. Um, I have an example, or, or really anything in life. That's our frame of reference. And I ha think today that as I go through this overview, maybe I have a little bit different frame of reference. Um, I also uh, have a story about frame of reference. It happened over the holidays uh, after Christmas all of my family, my children and my grandchildren, we were all together and we went to the movies. And before the movie started, as usual, there were the clips of movies to come. And there was this one clip about the movie Hidden Figures. Now some of you may have seen that, I think it came out uh, this weekend. It's about three African American women that uh, work at NASA in the early 60s. And they're very important. I think it is John Glenn's first launch uh, around the Earth. And so they're very important in that. So as we're watching the clips of this movie, my little granddaughter, Hallie, she's seven years old. She says to my daughter, she whispers, I'm just like those ladies. And so I'm thinking, hmm, wonder how seven-year-old Hallie is like these three African-American ladies that worked in the 60s at NASA. So I'm trying you know, to listen in, and Rachel says, how so, Hallie? And she says, they like dresses, and they're good at math. Okay, let me tell you something about Hallie, her frame of reference. All right, she's very, very thin and slight, and so she can't keep um, anything up around her waist. She can't keep pants or shorts or skirts around her waist, so she is, uh, don't have that problem. Um, she is always wearing a dress. She loves dresses, and her best subject is math. So she looks at these clips and sees these ladies, and in every scene, they're wearing dresses. And so she thinks, they must like dresses, they're writing numbers on the blackboard, they're good at math, I am just like those ladies. That's her frame of reference. Okay, now, those of us that are a little older, I lived in the 60s, I remember those times all women wore dresses. Do you remember? They wore dresses to work every day. We wore dresses to school. Our moms wore dresses to the grocery store. All women were wearing dresses. But that's not the frame of reference for Hallie. She goes to school, and maybe her teacher wears a dress now and then, but probably not very often. And she goes to church. Some are in dresses, but many are not. Her mom wears a dress now and then, but she usually wears her favorite outfit, her exercise clothes. Um, and so for Hallie's frame of reference, these ladies always being in a dress must mean they like dresses. So does she. So she is like those ladies. Hey, my first nursing uniform in the early 70s was a white dress. We even wore dresses at, uh, at the hospital. So this is her frame of reference. Uh, as I go through Exodus this morning, I'm gonna give you maybe a little bit frame of reference to look at the book of Exodus. So let's get started. Uh, Exodus is written by Moses, and he is the main character in this book. Um, Exodus, that title is a Greek word that means departure or going out. Exodus. 
In Exodus, we see the Israelites going out from Egypt by God's power through Moses. They are departing from Egypt. Um, this is God's victorious act in delivering his people from Egyptian slavery and oppression. But this exit is only half the story in Exodus. God tells his people, go out from Egypt and go towards me, and I will lead you into the land I promised you and your ancestors, and I will dwell with you. I will dwell with you. God takes them from bondage in Egypt to freedom, to worship him and dwell with him. Exodus is about God's redeeming Israel through Moses and entering a covenant relationship with them and dwelling with them. Okay, God wants to be in a relationship with his people. Now, this isn't new. We've seen this from the very beginning. In the beginning of Genesis, when uh, God created Adam and then Eve, he walked with them in the garden. He was in a relationship with them. God wants to be in relationship with his people. And it's funny because I think um, every generation thinks they're the ones that thought up the importance of relationships. Um, I was a teenager in the mid-60s, and that was all the hippies and living in communes, and we thought we had the inside knowledge on relationships. And then my son comes along, and I can remember in high school, he was hanging out with his friends, and I thought he should be working on this project, and I said that to him, you know, Ben, can you, you know, get, and he goes, Mom, relationships are important. In fact, Pastor Ted Kitchens said, relationships are the most important thing. It's like Ben was the first person to listen and hear this, and he is gonna be all about relationships. The truth is, ladies, God puts that longing for relationships in our hearts. He makes us relational because he is relational. He makes us, our soul, um, long for a relationship with him. And we look around and we see our world and we see people that are discouraged or unhappy, sad, um, confused. And it's because they're not in relationship with their creator, their heavenly father, the God of the universe who made them with a soul that longs for them and they just haven't figured that out. And maybe that's our story. Maybe we've set aside our relationship with the Lord and we're feeling confused or lonely or discouraged or sad. We are made to be in relationship with God. So the other half of X, oh, what about Christmas and the name of Jesus, Emmanuel? It means God with us. God loves us so much, wants a relationship with us, he came to earth. So the other half of Exodus is about God giving the law through Moses to his people. And he gives them instruction on how to worship and how to build the tabernacle where God would dwell with them. Imagine the Israelites, God dwelling in their midst. The law was a good thing. The law gives us direction towards God. This is the way we treat other people. This is the way we live our life, so it is properly oriented towards God. We call that obedience. Thomas Constable, in his notes, um, says it like this. Obedience consists of arranging all the parts of life in a proper relation to God, who is at the center. 
If something in life does not orient towards God properly, this is disobedience. So the law was a good thing. It gives us direction. It gives us understanding. It gives us delight. And the psalmist knew this. And I have a couple verses on your verse sheet. Y'all will have an extra verse sheet. Psalm 119 says this, verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. The law was a good thing. The other instruction that God gave them was on worship. Worship, worship is putting God at the center of our life. In the children's building it says, um, worship is loving God most, putting God first. Once again, we see God at the center of our lives. Now, I have a really good friend, and when her daughter went off to college, she made her a pie chart. That's a circular chart, and this was her life, and it was very colorful, and she had it divided up into little sections like a pie, and in each section, she put um, the things that her life consists of, school, and study, and work, and friends, and uh, activities, and church, and service, and all the different things. And then in the very center of this pie chart is another circle, and in the middle it said, God, and all these parts of her life intersect in the center where God is. And it was a uh, display, it was a diagram to um, show her daughter, and she made one for my son as well, that God needs to be in the center of our lives. Not just, you know, real big over in the church slice or in the ministry slice, but God needs to be in the center of our life. He needs to be involved in all the things that we do in our life. God in the center, and we see this principle very clearly in Exodus. Now, let me explain something. Um, I hate to say this, but uh, Exodus is a long book. It's 40 chapters, and we only have 16 weeks. So we've decided to take out the 13 chapters on the tabernacle and worship, and we're going to um, study them at another time in the very near future. But they won't be in our study this semester. So I just wanted to explain that when you start getting questions and seeing that. But we will study it in the very, maybe even this fall. Okay, so let's go on uh, with our overview here. The book of Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. It is the continuation of God's story of love and salvation that begins in Genesis. In chapter three, we see Adam and Eve disobeying God and sin enters the world. And men and women have been messing up ever since. You and I have messed up. We need a savior. We all need a savior. And so right there in the beginning, God promises, it's in Genesis 3, 15, God promises a future savior. And we know that this is Jesus Christ. And we also see a foreshadowing that salvation comes through the shedding of blood. As God kills an animal to provide animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. And you remember that, Adam and Eve disobey God and they're ashamed and they realize they're naked and they're hiding and they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves and God provides them animal skins for clothing. Then we go on in Genesis and we meet Abraham in chapter 12. Now Abraham descends from Seth, who is the son of Noah, and uh, Noah and his sons and wives, they're the ones that escaped the flood. And so Abraham is a descendant 
of Noah. And God tells Abraham in this beginning of chapter 12 to go to the land that I will show you. And God enters into an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Now, unconditional covenant, that's a promise, and unconditional means that it's all on God. It's all on God. Sometimes God has um, conditional covenants, and we have a part, and he has a part. But this promise to Abraham was all on God. He was going to keep this promise. And he promises Abraham land and many descendants and blessing. And blessing. And he says, Abraham will be blessed and the whole world will be blessed through Abraham. So let's look at that covenant. It's on your verse sheet, Genesis 12. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that last part, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that will bring blessing to all families of the earth, and Jesus Christ will descend from Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And Exodus is the story of those 12 sons and their families becoming a nation becoming a nation. God will deliver the Israelites from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, and lead them to this land that God promised Abraham. This deliverance, this salvation, comes with a high price. And once again, we will see the shedding of blood. In Exodus, we're gonna study the first Passover um, where the Israelites put the blood of that sacrificial perfect lamb over their doorposts to save them from death. And redemption through sacrifice becomes woven into the lives of the Israelites. In Exodus, we see the sovereign God providing deliverance for man from the slavery in which he finds himself. In Exodus, we see God providing salvation for man. Man does not provide salvation for himself. This is the greatest redemption story in the Old Testament. It's dramatic, it's exciting, it's amazing, and we get to study it this semester. But the most amazing part, it points to the greatest redemption story of all time. Jesus Christ saving us from the bondage of sin so that we can be free to enjoy a relationship with him. Our salvation comes from the greatest sacrifice, the shed blood of the perfect lamb of God, Jesus. Exodus is important in understanding Jesus the person of Jesus, and the work of Jesus Christ. So Exodus is a historical story, and it's our story as well. Third thing, Exodus is also a great revelation of God. It's a great revelation of God. God is on every page. In Exodus, God reveals himself in many ways so that the Israelites would have a deeper understanding of who he is. 
God gets real and personal in Exodus. He reveals his name to um, Moses. In chapter three, we're gonna see God tell Moses his name is I am who I am. God is the great I am. And the Israelites would pronounce this Yahweh. But not just to the Israelites, he wants the whole world to know his name. And so we're gonna read in Exodus, it's on your verse sheet, 9:16. This is God talking to Pharaoh, and he says, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He wanted the whole world to know his name. And our names are special. They're intimate. That's how people know us, by our names. God wanted the world to know his name. Okay, I know we're being real serious here, but I just got to tell you this joke. Sorry, I heard it at New Year's, and it's uh, about names. There were two elderly women. And uh, they had been friends for a million years. So they are sitting in their little tea room and they're having lunch and they're talking and suddenly the one friend looks at her other friend and says, I am so sorry, but I have forgotten your name. What is it? And her friend looks at her and says, how soon do you need to know? <laughs> hey, that's why we give you guys name tags in case uh, you don't remember your name. Okay, I'm sorry. Back to God revealing himself. <laughs> he not only reveals himself in his uh, name, but he reveals his glory in the book of Exodus. He reveals his glory in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as he leads the Israelites um, at the beginning of their journey. We also see God's plow power displayed throughout Exodus in his miraculous acts. The plagues, the manna, the parting of the Red Sea. Over and over again, we see God's power in Exodus. And we also see God's patience revealed in Exodus um, as he deals with his people and their waxing and waning faith. And if you've read Exodus all, you know that's how it is with the Israelites. They're all in. We love you. We're following you, God. You've saved us. And then the next day, grumble, grumble. Complain, complain. And then God fixes whatever's wrong. And they're all in and we're following you. And then it's not too long. Grumble, grumble. Complain, complain. And before you get um, you know, too hard on the Israelites, um, and, and I know you will because I did as I've studied through Exodus, and then I realized that's my story. I get up in the morning and I say, I'm following you, God. I'm gonna walk with you, Jesus, all day long. And then I walk in the kitchen and I start talking to my husband and it's grumble, grumble, complain, complain. I'm just like the Israelites. We also see God's patience revealed as he deals with the Egyptians' stubborn disobedience, Pharaoh's disobedience over and over again and we see God's patience. We also see God's faithfulness and love revealed in Exodus as he keeps his covenant promise to Abraham and the Israelites. God is trustworthy. He will accomplish what he says he will do. And over all this, we see that God is sovereign. He's sovereign. What, what does sovereign mean? You know, what is the sovereignty of God? It's kind of a churchy word, but we say it a whole lot. We're gonna see it all through Exodus. Um, simply put, sovereign is, uh, says that God is the ultimate ruler of the universe. No one is in higher authority than God. No one is in higher authority. He has all power. 
But I read this quote, I think it's very good. It says, this does not mean that God controls every detail of life immediately. God exercises his sovereignty by allowing human beings certain freedoms, but freedoms within certain limits. We're not just puppets on a string. Um, there's uh, freedom. So we see in scripture, and this is sometimes hard to put together, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God gives us choices, and the path of true freedom and blessing is to choose God and to choose his way and his will. But even in that, God is sovereign. And so when we choose poorly, when we fail, when we disobey, it does not stop God's ultimate purpose because God is sovereign. One last thing, in Exodus, God reveals that man appropriates what God has given us, that salvation, by faith. We see that in Exodus. And by the way, two major expressions of faith, obedience and worship. So look for those two activities throughout the book of Exodus. Maybe you didn't see some of that coming in this overview. Maybe some of this is new to you all already. Um, but that's our overview. Let's move on and get to the fun part. And that is looking at Exodus chapter one. Okay, turn there and I'm gonna begin reading. Verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay, let me start um, in verse one. In the Hebrew, that translates, now these are the names. And I point that out because that word now is a conjunction. It links what came before with what's coming next. And I say that to point out that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. And then we see these names listed, and it says the sons of Israel, and then it says they came with Jacob. So I just wanna remind us that um, Israel and Jacob are the same person. God renamed Jacob Israel. And I put that um, on your verse sheet here, and I, I used this verse, it's in a couple places in Genesis, but this also has a repeat of that covenant promise. So let's look at that, Genesis uh, 35. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And this is important. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So when you see Jacob and you see the name Israel, that is the same person. And it talks here about his sons. Now you might remember in the study of Genesis, Jacob had two wives. He loved Rachel, but Rachel had an older sister, Leah, and their dad tricks Jacob into marrying Leah first. 
And uh, though he loves Rachel, Leah was the one um, God blesses and opens her womb, and she has children first. So these first four sons we see there, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, those are Jacob's first four sons, and their mother is Leah. And then Rachel, um, not to be outdone, she gives her maidservant to Jacob to sleep with, and the maidservant has two sons, and they're listed there, Dan and Naphtali. Now, Leah wants to get in on this, so she gives her maidservant to Jacob, and Jacob has two sons with her, and they're listed last, Gad and Asher. And then Leah has two more sons of her own, that is Issachar and Zebulun, and finally, God blesses Rachel, and she has a son, Joseph, who becomes Jacob's favorite son, and then later she has Benjamin. So those are the 12 sons of, um, of Jacob. And um, why did they go to Egypt? Why did they go there? How did they get there in the first place? Well, in Genesis, we read there was a severe famine. The, um, and <clears throat> in their land, and Jacob hears that there's grain in Egypt, and so he's gonna go send his sons to Egypt. Now there is grain in Egypt because of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph's brothers? Um, they've sold him to a passing caravan and he ends up in Egypt. Kind of the ultimate sibling rivalry here. And so we see as the years pass, um, God's providence through a series of events and Je Joseph ends up becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. And this is because Joseph interprets um, Pharaoh's dream, and that dream points to seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so the Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge and tells um, Joseph, you know, you can collect and store the grain. And so that's what he does. And in the seven years that um, come of famine, Egypt has grain. And so Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob all come to Egypt and they are reunited. And then time passes, and we see that in verse six. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all their generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Over 300 years pass um, in these verses here. Joseph dies, his brothers dies, that generation dies. But what happens is God is blessing Jacob's family of 70, and they are fruitful and multiply. It's a population explosion. It's a baby boom. In fact, by the time they leave Egypt, when Moses takes them out of Egypt, it says in Exodus 12, 37, that there were 600,000 Israelite men. That didn't include the women and children. So if we add in maybe another 600,000 women, we're up to 1.2 million, and then there's probably at least that many um, children, 600,000, probably more. So probably close to 2 million leave Egypt, and it started with Jacob's family of 70. Ladies, God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. God promised Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. And right here in these verses, we see that promise of descendants. Um, I wanna, want you to look at one more verse on your verse sheet, Genesis 15. 
five and six, God is bring, talking to Abraham here and it says, he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God is a promise keeper and God is a giver of blessings. And Abraham believed in him. We can believe in him. We see God keeping his promises. We can believe in him. Can you imagine what the night sky would have looked like for Abraham? You know, maybe you've been out in the country or out on the ocean and it's dark, no lights around, and you look up and there are so many stars in the sky. And God says, Abraham, that's how many descendants you will have. Abraham probably couldn't even begin to count them all. God is a promise keeper. We can believe in him. And there's many promises in the Bible for us as well. When you come to those, you know, mark them, put a P, write them in a journal. It's good to remember these promises of God. And on your verse sheet, I wrote just a few of my favorite. Um, <clears throat> I wanna read them because I, I love to think of the promises of God. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be, dis be um, not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I love to put my name in here. I will help you, Deb. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And then, of course, the great promise, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God is a promise keeper. Believe in him. Let's go on, read verse eight. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, more than 300 years have passed since Jacob and his family came to Egypt. And, this new, and there is a new king over Egypt. Now, um, the ki king or rulers in Egypt were also called pharaohs. So you're going to see those words, king, ruler, pharaoh. You're going to see those interchanged. And I also want you to know that there are several different pharaohs that were ruling um, during this book of Exodus. So this Pharaoh that we're seeing here may not be the same one that was ruling when Moses is born, and he is definitely not the Pharaoh that Moses deals with when he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. So know that, that these different, there are different Pharaohs um, referred here, but they're all uh, called Pharaoh or king, ruler. So there's a new king, and he doesn't know Joseph. Now, several centuries have passed, but it's very possible that this Pharaoh knows about Joseph from history, but he doesn't care about it. You might remember that Joseph, um, the Pharaoh that was in ruling during his time, held Joseph with great respect, and he was very generous with Joseph's family. He gave Jacob and his sons the very best land in Egypt. But this ruler, he looks at their strength and the numbers of the um, is children of Israel, and you see that the children of Israel have now become a nation. He looks at that, and he is afraid. 
He's fearful. He says, what if they fight against us? So he comes up with a plan to deal with this threat. Let's read that plan, verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Pharaoh's plan, cruel oppression with forced labor. He makes their lives miserable, hard labor, slave labor. They're making bricks and they're building whole cities um, where they stored supplies. And they're also involved in that hard, back-breaking work in the fields. We see words like oppressed, afflict, burden, ruthlessly, bitter. Slaves, the Israelites were in a bad way. But what is the result of Pharaoh's plan? Verse 12 tells us that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they increased. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not thwarted. God's plan goes forward. God's plan is not thwarted. The children of Israel increase and Pharaoh's fear increases at the same time. So Pharaoh comes up with plan B. Let's see what that is, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Okay, so we see Pharaoh's plan B. Um, that is to have the Hebrew midwives kill the newborn um, male children. Kill the males at birth. And what is the result of plan B? The midwives disobey Pharaoh. They do not carry out his command. And why is that? Scripture tells us here, because they feared God. They feared God. What does that word fear mean? You know, often in scripture, when we see fear God, it means reverence, respect, awe for God. And it's the deepest reverence and respect, deep in the very deepest way. It would seem that these midwives knew God. They knew um, about God. They knew what was important to God, that life is precious that children are a blessing, they're a gift from God, and that murder is wrong. And so the midwives did what was right before God and let the babies live. Now, there probably were more than just these two midwives. They may have been the leading representative of the midwives, and maybe they were in charge over the midwives, and they're the ones that Pharaoh gives this command to, but there were probably more than that. But these midwives... Um, understood God and the understanding of God gave them courage. Um, they were willing to risk their lives because it was a risk to disobey Pharaoh. They were willing to do what was right before God. How scary. 
How um, frightening that may have been when they went before Pharaoh, or maybe not. Maybe they had that peace that passes understanding, that courage that God had given them. They tell Pharaoh that the Hebrew women um, were vigorous. Now, were they lying? You know, everybody wants to talk about that. We don't know. Maybe the Hebrew women were very healthy and gave birth easily. And the um, midwives were told to kind of hang back. Don't go quickly to the deliveries. Let's see what happens. What we do know is in verse 20. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We see here that God blesses the midwives with their own children. We see once again, children are a blessing from God. And do you see the irony? Instead of killing babies, they have their own babies. And once again, we see the people multiplied and grew very strong. So Pharaoh's plan B fails. His plan is thwarted, but not God's plan. God's plans are not thwarted. They go forward so we can trust him. Trust him and we can follow him. Let your relationship with God give you courage to follow him. You know, if things are scary in your life, if they're confusing, remember God's plans prevail and he has good plans for you. Follow him, trust him. On your verse sheet, uh, Job 42 says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33, 11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So Pharaoh, plan A doesn't work, plan B doesn't work, but Pharaoh just doesn't get it. He doesn't realize that he is not in control God is in control, so he comes up with plan C. Let's read that in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This plan is um, even more aggressive. Now he's getting his people involved. He's telling the Egyptians to murder the newborn baby boys. The oppression and the suffering of the Israelites deepens. But what is the result of this plan? Stay tuned, because we're gonna see what happens next week in chapter two. And I know you're gonna wanna be studying and reading chapter two to see what happens. And I think we pretty much know at this point that it's God's plan that will come to pass. God's plan that will come to pass. So in closing, just a reminder, as we study Exodus, this is your story. This is your story. Look for God revealing himself to you. See what new things you learn about God, his character, his actions, what's important to him. Or maybe just be reminded of those things that you learned about God in the past. But look for God revealing himself. Secondly, let this story in Exodus God's salvation story give you greater understanding into the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you. And thirdly, as you read and meditate and ponder each page of Exodus, each chapter in Exodus, allow the sovereign plan and power and love of God to inspire you to worship him. Worship him. And it's my prayer that each of you, as you study 
God's story in the book of Exodus will be blessed richly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God. You're a loving God. You're awesome, Lord. You're powerful. You're patient. You love us so much. You reveal yourself to us. You wanna be in relationship with us. Father, I just pray for each one of the women that have come today that you would bless them, that you would bless us with revelations of yourself new that draw us to you ever closer. Father, that we might worship you and serve you and love you more. You are a mighty God and we love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.